I think we should not do it. Great point, Chris. Really, <laughs> really helpful. I, it's nice that our, our listeners got a really good, concise summary and a nice, a nice take-home message. So well done for that. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by Game of Thrones. Oh, come on. Do you guys watch? How can you possibly be confused by that? Oh, I don't understand. What's the what's the obsession? Well, uh, it's all about violence and sex. It's very popular, yeah, apparently. Dragons. I mean, who doesn't want a dragon? Right, and fire and mutants. It's okay, like, so, mutants so, so in my notes I wrote, as confused as I am by Game of Thrones, and then my next line is, Chris, do you want to say anything inappropriate that we're going to have to cut out? <laughs> no, no, no. I don't need to do that. But I do understand that, that uh, you know, the collective works of George H.R.R. Morrow are extremely complicated for the, for the lay consumer of fantasy there's violence. A of, there's a lot of plot lines in there. There's a lot of plot lines in there. And so it turns out that there's this awesome website that you can go to that will explain everything you need to know about Game of Thrones, which is called the Population Health Exchange. <laughs> really? <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. And I didn't realize this, but Leslie Talalian is with the number one fans. Wow. What else can you learn there? Uh, you wouldn't believe what you can learn. <laughs> can you learn things about, uh, is it, is it, is it a, in addition the to Avengers? that also a hope yeah, for lifelong yeah. learning? 10, 10 Avengers movies. There are a lot of, <laughs> what, what? Public lifelong, health. No, not so much lifelong learning, but <laughs> it is a source of all sorts of information about trivia. I don't think you're going to find that there, but I do think you'll find public health learning programs and tools. Anyway, so I am here with, uh, oh, I'm Matt Fox, and I am here with uh, Chris Gill and Don Thea. In spirit. Here is, here's London for you. Well, I'm here Still. on the on the, on the the microphone with right. uh, you both, and we're all from the Boston University School of Public Health. And uh, let's get into today's show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at the relationship between cannabis use and psychotic disorders. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we are going to talk about something I had never heard of before, something called ethics dumping. And then in our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will tell us whether or not cats do indeed know their names. They do. He did that last time. I know. That was my point. We're going to talk about naked mole rats today. Something like that. Yeah, Chris has forewarned us we're going to be talking about Naked Mole Rats, and uh, Nick is ready with the edit functions in advance. So, There's nothing obscene about the beauty of a Naked Mole Rat. It's just the natural way of things. Let's, let's move on. So segment one, we are going to talk about an article that looked at the relationship between cannabis use and psychotic disorders published in Lancet Psychiatry. The study was titled The Contribution of Cannabis Use to variation in the incidence of psychotic disorder across Europe, E-U-G-E-I. I think that's the abbreviation for the study acronym, a multicenter case control study by Marta DeForti of the Social, Genetic, and Developmental Psychiatry Department at King's College London, where I should say I am not now, but I did spend a year as an undergraduate. So here are some of the headlines for this one. Daily marijuana use linked with higher risk of psychosis says a study that was from the New York Post. The Chicago Sun-Times says smoking high-potency marijuana daily raises risk of psychosis, study says. Esquire says smoking weed daily could cause psychosis. The Guardian says, can we all chill out about cannabis? Not quite yet. Now, that is an opinion piece. 
Uh, that was not a news story. And then The Hill says, will smoking cannabis make you psychotic? Question mark. Not likely. So uh, those are all huh. over the spectrum. Uh, that was a pretty of, good summary. Yeah. Uh, they seem to have taken all different, gotten a lot of different things out of this study. So, Don, let's uh, let's have you start off by giving us the giving us the four one one on this study. These authors sought to look at the association between a first episode of psychosis and marijuana use in a bunch of different um, circumstances using this five year study called that Matt referred to called the EU GEI study, which was. A study that was intended to look at the genetic, clinical, and environmental determinants of psychosis during the years of 2005 to 2010. Um, It was located in 17 sites in England, France, Netherlands, Italy, and Spain. And they found that among those sites, during that period of time, there was about an eightfold difference in the incidence of first psychosis. And so they they, they were interested in diving a little bit deeper and trying to see if um, there were specific determinants that they could identify and specifically the use of cannabis um, and to what extent that contributed to it. So the aims of the study were to describe the differences in patterns of cannabis use across the sites to identify me- a measure of cannabis use with the strongest impact on the odds of psychotic disorder across sites, calculate the population attributable fraction for the specific use patterns associated with the highest association with cannabis use, and to test whether the differences in patterns of cannabis use contribute to variations in the incidence of the psychotic order. Disorder, I mean. So what they did is they enrolled individuals between the ages of 18 and 64 years old who manifested their first episode of psychosis that presented to these 17 sites, which had clinical teams. People were excluded if they were previously treated for psychosis or if there was an organic component to their psychosis, including intoxication or dementia or stroke or infectious disease or epilepsy. There are other causes of psychosis which they excluded. So they were just looking at the first onset of of psychosis in, in individuals without an otherwise clear explanation for it. So in addition to enrolling the people that, that presented to the clinical teams, they sought to balance out some of those individuals or some of those groups like young men that were underrepresented. And to do that, they used the internet and newspaper advertisements and flyers. And in all of those ways in which they were seeking um, additional enrollees, they never mentioned the use of cannabis. So people would be enrolled in this study as controls or as people who answered these advertisements without knowing that that was the underlying reason for the enrollment. And they looked at socioeconomic status. They applied to every individual a modified cannabis experience questionnaire. They called it a CEQ. They looked at six measures of cannabis use, lifetime use, current use, age at first use, frequency of use, and the, the amount of money spent per week during the most consistent phase of use. They also looked, they, they tried to stratify the cannabis that was used during this most consistent period in individuals who did use cannabis in terms of its potency. And the way they determined the potency of the, of the, the reported, the, the use on the part of the individual was to ask them what was the colloquial name of the marijuana that they used. For instance, skunk or sensimia, super skunk or French hashish, all were designations for high potency marijuana, as opposed to hash resin from from the UK and Italy or herbal cannabis or Brazilian marijuana and hash. And they had somehow determined ahead of time that the potency in those particular named 
kinds of marijuana was either high or either low. And so it was sort of self-report of the kind of cannabis that they were using. And apparently you get, there's cannabis that you can get in the Netherlands that has THC con- content as high as 67%. So what they did wow. is they, they, they then inferred what the potency was, and they used a breakpoint of 10%. So if uh, 10%, less than 10% would be considered low-dose cannabis, and uh, above 10% was high-dose cannabis. And they looked at a bunch of other covariates, including recreational drugs, tobacco, stimulants, ketamine use, hallucinogens, novel psychoactive substances they, they, uh, they referred to, and I'm wondering if that was Tide tablets or Tide packets, which apparently is a means for getting high in some places. I did not know that. Yeah, apparently, and apparently quite dangerous, too. And they did um, a sensitivity analysis that I don't think we need to get into, but um, they approached 15, about 1,500 patients who had first psychosis, 23% refused, and they tended to be older women, um, white European older women. And they dropped a few of the sites because the data were poor or the enrollment was poor, and it, they ended up enrolling 901 individuals, which they say was broadly representative of all the patients, except that they tended to be a little bit younger than all of the patients that were in the overall study. And they enrolled uh, about 1,100 population controls. And on table one, they they show us the comparison of a a lot of the, the various characteristics of both the controls and the cases, and I was really struck by the amount of difference. Yeah, really. Between the gen- Not comparable. Not comparable in terms of gender, ethnicity, education, employment, lifetime cannabis or tobacco use, and other drug use. Though not surprising. I mean, you would expect that it, in terms of their baseline characteristics, these groups would be quite different. Yeah, it just seemed like they were they were more different in more categories than I actually expected. Mm, okay. So they went through the analysis, and bottom line is that they found an adjusted odds ratio of first ever psychosis in terms of somebody who uh, is a current user of cannabis, an adjusted odds ratio of 1.1. If the first use was um, below the age of 16, the odds ratio was 1.6. And if the use was daily, it went up to 3.2 odds ratio versus never or rarely using cannabis. And then when they looked at the potency, over 10% THC content, they found a 1.6 greater likelihood of having a first psychotic episode. And then they combined daily use and high potency, and the odds ratio went up to 4.8. They found that there was a lot of variation when they determined the population attributable fraction. They figured that assuming causality, which is a big assumption. It's a big that, assumption. A big assumption that if um, they could prevent cannabis use in Amsterdam, that they would get rid of about 44% of the cases of first psychosis that are seen in that, in that town. Mm. Which seems, seems quite high to me, but uh, yeah, really we, high, could, huh? we could come back to that. Yeah. yeah. So overall, the uh, the daily use of cannabis was associated with about a 3.2 times higher likelihood of having a psychotic, a first psychotic <laughs> episode. And if you use highly potent uh, marijuana, it was 1.6 times higher. And as I said, 4.8 times higher if you used actually both. And apparently, if, if, if you were a daily user of high potency marijuana and you live in Amsterdam, it's as high as nine ti- ninefold higher, nine times higher likelihood of having a first psychotic episode. Okay, so Chris, I'm going to come to you in a second, but I figured before I do that, it's worth mentioning that I think this is the first time we've done a case control study on the program. And by a case control study, Mm. we just mean a study in which first, well, it doesn't have to be done this way, but in this case, Mm. they, they identified cases 
of psychosis. So they identified people with the outcome. And then in a case control study, we then find a representative sample of the population that gave rise to that that set of cases, which is difficult to do. But if we can we can get that representative sample, the sample is meant to tell us about the distribution of the exposure in the study base. So the exposure here being cannabis use. And we can, in theory, draw reasonable inferences about the effect of 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 marijuana use on on psychosis if we have a done that well we've identified a reasonable the population reasonably well and sampled from them and then dealt with all the other problems that we tend to run into observational studies like confounding and misclassification and all those things so chris what was your feeling about this study well i i I don't think i'm going to surprise you but i i was not i was not a super fan of the study to to be honest i Mm -hmm. and the, the reason why is 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 a reason that i've stated on many occasions before, which is that I, I, I kind of find myself very frustrated with analyses that fundamentally don't really give me an answer to the question. And what I mean by that is that there are, you know, as, as we all know, issues in terms of bias and causality that are associated with case control studies. And the kinds of issues that I can imagine that might lead to a false interpretation of these data are uh, not resolved in this paper. And so I come away from reading it really not feeling much wiser than when I started uh, as to which of these models is correct. Fair, but but can you can you give us a sense for specifically why? I mean, what, what are the issues that you're concerned about? Okay, so let me start with with the models, and then then I'll sort of extend my, my argument further. So let, let's imagine that the first model is correct, which is that cannabis leads to psychotic disorder, which is in this case really a, a code word for schizophrenia, as it turns out. So we're going to say that cannabis smoking cannabis turns normal people into schizophrenics, or people with with a psychotic well, yeah. State. Let, I just want to take issue with that because you know schizophrenia would be a diagnosis uh, in which psych, uh, there are psychotic episodes, but you can have a psychotic episode, say, due to an organic brain syndrome that is not, does not confer a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So okay, I think you need, to, you need to disentangle the two. But let's, let's, let's stick with the, the, the starting point that yeah. the consumption of cannabis in some dose response way will lead to a psychotic disorder. So that's possibility number one. Possibility number two is that people who are at, um, who have psychotic disorders already, possibly undiagnosed, are more likely to self-medicate and use cannabis because it is it has calming uh, properties. And that wouldn't necessarily just be true for cannabis. There could be many drugs that would fall into that category, such as opiates or, or, or tobacco even, or alcohol. And we know that all the substance use is very common in patients with, with, with um, psychological uh, disorders uh, for precisely this reason, that they self-medicate. I think that's a part of the, just, just to play the, the devil's advocate, I think that's part of the reason why they chose first psychotic episode. Yeah, I understand that. And then the third one is that there could be some population of, you know, patients who have maybe a, a, a low-level pre-existing psychotic disorder that is potentiated by the superimposition of these psychotropic drugs, you know, because marijuana, you know, THC is a hallucinogen. And so it could, you know, exacerbate those pre-existing. So it's not really creating the disease, but it is unmasking, unmasking the disease. Right. And so it's like leading to an accelerated rate of diagnosis, but it's not causal. No, so... You know, the authors talk then about how there's a dose-response relationship, and I and I would stipulate that the dose-response relationship doesn't actually clarify 
anything about which of these models would be preferred or the other. So I still don't know whether we are just unmasking disorders or if it's reverse causality because patients with psychotic disorder preferentially choose to use these medicines to self-medicate or if it's a causal relationship. And, and so since I don't know the answer to that, I feel uninformed. And I would also kind of loop back to that issue about self-medication because I wouldn't be surprised if you could do the same analysis and instead of like marijuana consumption, you could substitute opiate use. And nobody claims that opiates lead to psychotic disorders, but no one would be surprised to find that patients who have psychotic disorders often end up using opiates. Okay. The same thing with tobacco, the same thing with alcohol. In fact, if you substitute attendance at the Boston University Healthcare for the Homeless Clinic as an exposure, you would find that that was highly correlated with psychotic disorder. And obviously that's absurd. You know, it cannot be causal. And so I, you know, if you just substitute the variable, I feel like we're stuck here and we still don't know from this paper, which of these is likely to be the, 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 the true case. And so I'm, I feel like I give a big shrug and say, I don't, I, I still don't know whether it causes anything. I hear your point here. And I, I think that the part of the issue here is that, that the timing is so important. So it isn't that you, you could never tease out these relationships. You, you could, but you would need to know the timing of the marijuana use came before the first psychotic uh, oh, episode. Right. And you, you're as, absolutely as, right, Matt. As Don says, you know, they, they limited this to first psychotic episode, but they they were collecting the information on the exposure on the marijuana use retrospectively, if I understood correctly. Yeah. So you're right. asking people at the time of the, the psychotic disorder or after I don't I didn't after totally the diagnosis get has been made. Right. And I would think that people would there would be recall bias potential there because you have those who have the psychotic disorder may may remember their exposures to marijuana differently than those who don't have a psychotic disorder. You could also there are, I mean social desirability bias, all kinds of reasons why you would misreport your cannabis use in a way that would lead to an increased association when maybe there isn't necessarily one. I will say, I mean so Don and I checked it on this the other day and and we both kind of had the same reaction, which is that our priors on this were, you know, some some harmful effect that, that I, mine was a probably a small effect. But I kind of went into this thinking there may actually be one. But I'm, I, but like you, Chris, I, I struggled to see this as strong evidence supporting my prior that I think there was a lot in here that, you know, made me concerned that we may not actually be looking at a true effect. Now, we may be. But the potential for the confounding, so that, that the issue that Don raised in the beginning, that these these groups were pretty incomparable at baseline, or whatever we're defining baseline as, before the psychotic disorder diagnosis. And statistical models, you, you've got to deal with the measured confounding, but the, they were pretty rough measures of those confounders. So most of them mm -hmm. were dichotomized ever or mm -hmm. never type confounders, where it's really difficult to control that confounding. So I, I was left as well with a lot of a lot of questions about this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean my prior was that there was going to be um, some association found in part because there there is a growing body of literature that seems to indicate that that there are mental health effects of marijuana use and of chronic marijuana use and I think in particular in young adolescents there are there are some 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 pretty disturbing effects that have been mm -hmm. that have been found with marijuana use and so it it doesn't come as a surprise all the caveats that you point out Chris I I completely agree with although the third the third category that you that you pose 
which is that it, this is an unmasking, I think, is perfectly consistent with what the authors are trying to drive at. I mean, it's not that marijuana causes somebody who has no propensity to develop psychosis to develop psychosis, but rather it's an enabling factor. And that, in fact, in the absence of marijuana, the question, which is not answered by this by this study, is would it have developed anyway or would it not have developed anyway in that individual with an underlying propensity who didn't smoke marijuana? And so mm-hmm. it could still, if that is in fact true, there could be still some, and, and it is borne out by stronger research over time, it could have some beneficial public health effects. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I am not arguing uh, in any way that the data in this paper refute the possibility that there's a causal relationship. My, con, my, you know, my, my beef with this, if you will, is that the methodology doesn't allow us to make that call. And we're still like wondering at the end of the paper, well, is it causal or is it coincidental? So is not it, a nail in the coffin, but maybe a little, a little tiny yeah, thumbtack. You know, as, <laughs> as with you and Matt, if you'd asked me my prior before this, I would say, you, you know, you betcha there's going to be an association. Yeah. But I, I still don't know whether it's a causal association. That's, that's the tricky part here. I, I'm willing to believe there could be. I just don't find that the paper persuaded me that we know that we know much more than we did before. Sure. Other than that, the two of them hang together. You know, I got to say, uh, consuming marijuana with a, what was it, a 70, 67% THC content, I, I would find it hard to imagine that anybody wouldn't get psychotic with that high a level of a, you know, essentially a very psychoactive substance. Yeah. That's really yeah. high. That's really high. Because I think like marijuana that they sell in the state here for medical marijuana is like in the 20 to 25 percent THC range, even that high? which is even pretty high yeah. already. That's, that's quite potent stuff. So 60 percent, that's astonishing. So one of the, not to change the subject, but uh, one of the things, one of the questions that this study sort of raised for me is that I, I was very confused. So if you go back and read the title of this study, the title of the study does not say anything about causation. Right, the contribution right. of cannabis use to variation in incidence. Okay, contribution maybe, 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 but they're really just talking about variation. Then in the manuscript, they vacillate back and forth between using causal language and predictive language. Their main conclusion is our main findings show that among the measures of cannabis use tested, the strongest independent predictors. Mm-hmm. Of whether an individual could have a psychotic disorder, blah blah blah. So, so there we're, we're using the language of prediction, not the language of of causation. And then they get into the population attributable fraction analysis, where they say, okay, if we can assume this is causal, and it gets very confusing. And so the the question that it raised for me was, when is it okay to use what I think of as poorly poorly specified exposures? And then try to make causal statements from data. Let's assume none of the problems that we've already talked about existed. And the simple problem was, you know, what's the hypothesis? Is the hypothesis that you smoke marijuana once and suddenly your risk for developing psychosis goes up? Is it, you know, a certain amount over a certain period of time? And the way this plays out to me where it gets the least clear is, and, and I don't want to imply that the author's put any stock into this, but but it's in there, is that one of their exposures was spending $20 on marijuana. Spending $20 on marijuana is is a very poorly defined exposure, right? right. I, mean, I, would, I don't know how much one $20 would buy you. Especially, I don't when, either. especially as expressed in euros, because it was 20 Probably euros, not I think. that much. Was I it mean, 20 euros? Sorry, yeah. 20 euros or whatever it was, 20 euros. 
you 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 wouldn't do a randomized trial of spend twenty euros on on marijuana, right? And it's see a, who gets a, to, who get becomes psychotic. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's yeah. a it's an incredibly poorly defined exposure that you would and and I hate to always refer back to trials, but for me trials are the way to think through, you know, how you're setting up your studies is, is is it valid? You would never do that, and I think there you could make a case that that much of the exposures in this study are fairly poorly defined, even though they they veer into the direction of of exposures that I think make more sense, like a certain amount of marijuana over a certain period of time. And, you know, it, it just it's I don't know mm-hmm. what to say about yeah, that. Beyond I, it's, I, I find it frustrating. I sort of had a similar a similar beef in, when when the authors start making the argument that there appears to be a correlation across cities in study sites in terms of crude incidence of psychosis, or, or really overall psychosis, where London has high daily use and the incidence of psychosis is 45 cases per 100,000. Amsterdam also has high, but not quite as high as London, and their incidence of, schizoph- or, of, first, of psychosis is 38 cases. And then Bologna has very low use of cannabis and the, their incidence of psychosis is less at 21 cases per 100,000. I thought that, that was really torturing the data. Yeah, I agree with you. And and to to get back to your your issue about the the language, Matt, I, I guess I would have preferred that they didn't use the population attributable fraction at all because right. it feels like it's just making an assumption that goes way beyond what is fair here. Yeah. And it is misleading, and clearly the the media reports that you described at the beginning, a number of them picked up on that and ran with it. So, but I mean, even mm-hmm. the authors say assuming causality, which yeah. is a huge assumption. It's a huge assumption, right. but once you state it, like you say, well, maybe we should assume causality. I mean, it's 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 out there, and now it kind of it, right. it lends itself credibility just by yep. being stated. Yep. A couple of last things that 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 I just wanted to point out. So I, I described the case control study in the beginning, and I said the key assumption is that that the controls that are representative of the exposure distribution in the base, that they represent the population that gave rise to these cases. And the question we tend to ask when we have a sample of cases is, who are the people who, if they had developed psychosis, would have made it into this study? And I'm not sure that, that the population that they use as controls is really representative of that population. So they... My, my understanding of their control selection was that controls were sampled uh, mostly using random sampling from lists of postal addresses and, from G- and also from GP lists. And I'm not sure that that's the population that necessarily would end up in a, um, with a diagnosis if they had developed one. In addition, they excluded controls if they had ever received a diagnosis of or treatment for psychotic disorder. And I know many people think that is the right thing to do, but we don't do that. In a case control study, we don't exclude people who are case who were cases as controls or potential cases as controls. It's probably not that big of a deal because it's probably not that common of a of an outcome. But it, it it's not what we should be doing in case control studies. Is is that because in this instance they they wanted you know this is not a cohort study so they weren't really looking at effects over time they were measuring the, the exposure retroactively but if they had had a, like a previous diagnosis of of psychotic disorder ten years ago and then the marijuana use occurred subsequent to that that would clearly violate all assumptions of causality. That well so that would be true but the point of the controls here is to get 
the exposure distribution in the population that gave rise to the cases. So you're right in terms of the timing, you still want to get the timing right. But I still don't think it would make sense to exclude the, the cases or potential cases as controls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> any uh, any last last points anyone wants to raise before we move on? Yeah, just sort of in support to, of, of your your line of thinking, Matt. Um, I think you know it's, it struck me that the age difference was was really quite large, and and we Between know that the cases and the non cases, cases and not cases, and you know the authors themselves admitted that they had they had underrepresented. They had underrepresented populations that they needed to reach out and try to try to um, augment in, in their enrollment, and that was young men. And we know yeah. that schizophrenia and psychosis tends to the onset tends to be in younger people. It tends to be in the late teens and the early twenties. So, I mean, I think that that that's that's something that sort of underscores what you were saying, Matt. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, I think in summary, we're we're all open to the to the hypothesis, but are not yet convinced by this data, or at least we don't. We think there's enough. Potential for bias in this that we're not uh, we're not swayed for sure. Yeah, uh, a couple last things. So once again, so I, this was uh, I looked at the introduction to this, and it's again really short, two hundred forty one words. And I wanted to relay my recent experience with one of the. So this was in the the Lancet Psychology Lancet Psychiatry, Psychiatry I think. Yeah. yeah. So I had an experience recently with one of the Lancet journals, in which we submitted a paper, we got comments back. And we then responded to the comments. But now, as happens when you do this, you respond to the comments and you have to make the paper longer. And so they came back to us and said, um, obviously, you need to shorten the paper. And one of the ways they suggested doing that was by making the introduction shorter. So I think that's actually a maybe by design. It may not be that I keep noticing all these short introductions that essentially they want to keep the introduction short and focus on the the details in the discussion. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm All right, so let's move on. So in our second segment, we want to talk about something that, as I mentioned in the intro, I'd never really heard of this before. It's something called ethics dumping. And this was uh, inspired by an article that Don found in, uh, I believe it was in The Economist. The article was entitled, Recent Events Highlight an Unpleasant Scientific Practice Ethics Dumping by, I don't know, because I couldn't find a byline on this. I don't know if you guys could. But no, I the Economist no, never has bylines. Oh, it doesn't? No. Okay, well, then it's by The Economist. Yeah. So the article, it begins by talking about the recent scandal in China dealing with the editing of the genomes of two embryos that are now baby girls and the reaction of many who who thought of this as a particularly problematic event conducted in a place with laxed enforcement. I'm, I'm quoting here from the, the study a bit, from the article a bit. And the basic argument uh, that they made in this economist piece was that this may be part of a larger phenomenon called ethics dumping. And so now I'm actually quoting from the article. They say ethics dumping is the carrying out by researchers from one country, usually rich and with strict regulations, in another, usually less well off and with laxer laws, of an experiment that would not be permitted at home or of one that might be permitted, but in a way that would be frowned upon. And so the idea here is that if you go back to the the Chinese experiment that I just talked about, they say the suggestion in this case is that the doctor involved in the experiment, who led the experiment, Dr. He, He, was encouraged and assisted in this project by a researcher at an American university. So this person was Dr. He's mentor, uh, and had been on publications with the same doctor as the one who had carried out the research. 
and supposedly was on a paper that was submitted to Nature describing this particular work, the embryo manipulation, before it was rejected and came out into the public. And so the idea here is that the 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 there are folks there there may be people in you know these these com- countries where ethical limitation uh, regulations would prevent doing certain research. So you find people in a country with lax laws and you encourage them or work with them or help them somehow, uh, not by directly participating, but by condoning and, and supporting the work. And therefore it gets done, but you are not directly involved. And they refer to this as as ethics dumping. Now they say in this article that there were a dozen similar cases in Asian Africa that came out in a, in a uh, book published by a group called Trust, called Ethics Dumping, Case Studies from North-South Research Collaborations. They give some examples of these in Indian trials and, and other places. One of the examples they give hit a little close to home. They talked about uh, the efficacy of cheap cervical cancer screening methods, which would require control groups, which in the United States would be composed of women undergoing an established screening procedure. But in the Indian trials... The controls, a total of 141,000 women, were not offered pap smears that were the supposed gold standard in the, uh, well, certainly in the U.S. and they say in India at that time. Anyway, so the article goes on to describe a number of these these cases. And I listen, you know, reading this article kind of disturbed me because when you follow it through to the to its most horrific ends, uh, some of these things are very clearly disturbing. The the editing of of embryos, or some examples Don might want to mention, are are pretty clear violations of what I think would be ethically feasible. What yeah. I get concerned about is where the line is on these things. So so when is it okay to be involved in research that you know might not be uh, appropriate in one country, but would be appropriate in another if you are a re- researcher from the country where it's not appropriate. Yeah. And I wonder what you all think of of this or the the larger concept in general. So to me, it felt like a lot of this sort of comes down to the common rule about the ethical conduct of Which is? research. So there there are five pieces of the common rule, that this is five central pieces. And the first one is the most relevant here, which is that the, the risk of the experiment must be reasonable and it must be minimized relative to the benefits. And so right away we run into a problem here where the two baby girls in question had their embryos, you know, were you know were edited in, in the embryo stage to render them uh, resistant to HIV. Now, that's a you know, you, it's seemingly a noble thing to do, but at the same time, it invites all sorts of potential risks. And in fact, the risks cannot be known even, you know, within the first few years, the downstream effects of having the the genome, the germline genome of these children manipulated is something that we may not know for a decade or two uh, down the line. Plus the fact is that these girls have now had a, a permanent change made to their their germline DNA, and so they will. This trait that has been edited into them is itself heritable. Okay, so Dr. Hu has made a decision that now passes on and on and on through all the ancestors of this child in perpetuity, and yeah. without any like understanding of what the of the what the potential risks of that were, and the putative benefit of it, it was totally implausible because these children were not at risk of getting HIV uh, peripartum. So hang on a second, but 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 so I think we and I think we all agree that this was highly unethical. 
But that that isn't the question I think that we want to focus on here, which is the question of of whether or not this research was encouraged by by people in high income countries in the U.S. in this case, and whether there are ever cases where that would be justified. Hmm. So, I mean, I guess the answer is 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 yes. That there are times, say. In the development of a of a of a new vaccine that might yeah. have benefits in the United States, but might also have benefits outside of the United States, the one that comes to mind recently is groupie strep, uh, which is a common cause of sepsis in in uh, neonates and sometimes in the mothers as well. So the incidence of groupie strep sepsis in the United States is relatively low because our our existing public health screening and, and prophylaxis strategy is, is quite comprehensive and quite effective. And so it's difficult to do those studies here in the United States because it's hard to accumulate the number of events. But I, you know, ultimately, one would like to license that vaccine in the United States. However, it is also true that group step is a huge problem in the developed world. And so the developing world, excuse me. And so many of the group step trials have been done outside of the United States because the higher event rate exists outside of the United States. And so this is sort of like, this seems like a very gray zone to me. Well, you know, I think we've, we've, we've to a certain extent, we've lived through this um, with HIV. Uh, you know, Matt and I were talking and, and, and previously um, it was a, it was a huge issue when a course of antiretroviral medication would cost $17,000 a year and to then be taking the, the efficacy trials of those medications to places where they're in incredible need, um, like Africa, posed a real ethical problem if, in fact, you couldn't guarantee, and we, it was hard to imagine that you could guarantee a lifelong supply for those individuals who were being um, treated with a very effective medication that cost $17,000 a year. And so it was, it was something that the HIV research world went through a, a lot of soul searching about. And I think, Matt, you're, you, when you and I were talking about this, your issue was that, yeah, at the time it appeared to be unethical, but what has subsequently happened and probably wouldn't have happened if we hadn't done that is that the cost of those medications are now about $150 a year and millions of people's lives have been saved as a result. So I agree, Chris, this is a it's sort of a gray area. It's very tricky. And, you know, it, for that it is for, for, for this particular case, for Dr. He is it, it's, it's not. not at all. And the other the other case yeah. that they cite in this article is the case of head transplantation, and there, he's not kidding about that. Which which, which he's not kidding about that. Freaks me yeah, out. Right. Go ahead. No, so, Go ahead so, so 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 apparently there are, there's an an Italian neurosurgeon who has shown in animal models that that reconnecting the spinal cord can be done in what appears using very soft evidence appears to be successful and. He has found a researcher in the developing world who is also, I believe, a neurosurgeon, and they have had actually found an individual who was a paraplegic, quadriplegic, who said that they wanted to be the first individual who would um, be the subject oh, of a sakes. head transplantation. Oh, for, so they're going to decapitate this guy and then try to attach a new head Correct. to him? Correct. Correct. Wow. It ended up that he changed his mind because... He, mirac- he the researcher or he the I'm sorry, he the, patient. the the patient changed his mind and doesn't want to agree to do it because he, he ended up having a child and that sort of changed his whole perspective. Well on sure, it. and the probability of death would be close to hundred percent. One would think. Yeah. One would think. 
So, so very. I mean, that that is that is an Boy. extreme example of, <laughs> uh, of yeah. ethics dumping. You know, there was a, there was another example that that, that uh, has a number of similar elements, but which was this live attenuated herpes vaccine developed by this um, uh, Dr. William Halford at the University of, of Southern Illinois or something like that, and he chose to test this outside the United States in St. Kitts and Nevis. Um, and he would fly U.S. citizens, test subjects, down to Nevis to be vaccinated, uh, down to St. Kitts, excuse me, to be vaccinated. And they did this almost entirely to avoid FDA oversight and to not have to go through an IRB. And of course, they didn't notify the people, the health authorities in St. Kitts. So it's not quite the same because it's not like they were looking for a lower level of ethical standards in which to conduct their trial. They were just looking for a place where the local health authorities probably didn't have the resources to to do oversight. And so they could get away with it. Mm. But, you know, this was really, you know, monstrous. And there was almost no safety monitoring of these patients at all. And a number of them had very severe outbreaks of herpes simplex, uh, you know, after receiving, you know, their second dose of, of, of the vaccine. So, and there was no physician oversight on site during the administration of these, these, uh, these vaccinations. So it was, uh, yeah. it was, it checked off almost every do not do box on yeah. the list of ethical behavior and research. Yeah. I do think, I do think that there, there, the article where I thought it fell down a little bit was not clearly making the distinction between ethics dumping and just poor ethical behavior. So, you know, as best I could understand it, and maybe I just didn't understand it well enough, the example that they used of the, um, the pap smear was just unethical. It wasn't that it would have been ethical. You know, they, they moved the study to India because it would have been ethical there and not ethical in the U S it sounds like from what I was reading, it would be unethical in both places. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, d- ethics dumping is the, uh, the concept that you are shifting uh, the research to a place where it would be seen as ethical, or at least you could get away with it, but is still encouraged by those in, in places where it would be, would be considered unethical. And, and I, so I, I think a distinction does need to be made. All right. Any, anyone, any last points anyone wants to, to make about ethics dumping? I think we should not do it. Great point, Chris. Really, really helpful. It's nice that our our listeners got a really good, concise summary and a nice a nice take home message. So, well done for that. It's, it's a bad thing to do. Don't do that. It is a bad thing to do. Please, please don't do it. Okay, uh, so let's let's go on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And um, I, as mentioned on our last podcast, feel the amazing and amusing no longer needs an introduction. So let's just jump right into it. And I. I'm going to take the prerogative to go first this time. So there is another podcast out there. You may not, you guys may be surprised to learn we're not the only podcast in the world. We're, only, we're the only really excellent podcast. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so there's, a, so there's sure. another podcast that I, I do enjoy um, called Everything Hurts. I've mentioned it on the podcast before. Started by two guys, one of whom is is at uh, Northeastern, right down the road, uh, a guy named James Heathers. And James Heathers was also instrumental in, so remember earlier we talked about the Brian Wansing studies, the the uh, nutrition studies that, that had all kinds of problems and a bunch of clever uh, researchers unearthed all these problems and, and eventually most of those studies were actually retracted. Uh, he was one of them. He was one of the guys who pinned it on him, you mean? Not one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was one of the guys who outed 
to all these problems. Well, James Heathers is also a he's also a very amusing person. And he is joined Twitter and he's got fantastic Twitter postings. And I, I didn't get a chance to to look up. I will do it exact while I'm speaking. But he it looks like he has about 6,800 Twitter followers. Okay. Now, just mm, about a month ago, I would say, he launched a new Twitter handle, which now has 55,000 followers, despite the fact that it has only been in existence for a short period of time and has only put out 69 tweets. Wow. And the <laughs> Twitter handle is at Just Sayin' Mice. Just Sayin' Mice? Just Say Mice. In mice, or actually just says in mice, but just just says in mice. And the entire Twitter handle, he just puts out articles that come out in the popular press that, you know, claim some big claim. So just looking at one of them on here. (laughs) So, uh, you know, things like stop drinking protein shakes, beverages may lead to weight gain, depression and shorter lifespans and things like that. And then he just tweets out. In mice, because all these studies were done in mice. mice. (laughs) Seriously. That's awesome. A new drug could let us eat anything without gaining weight. In mice. And these are all mice experiments. They're no human studies studies at all. No human. And yet they get huge headlines of all these different things. (laughs) And so he's just put together this website. 55,000 followers. That's great. Tweeting out. It's beautiful. One good for two him. Words, good for him. That's that's hysterical. In mice, uh, so just, you should all go follow. Is it like hashtag in mice or something or or? No, no. It's just uh, it's a it's a Twitter handle at just just says in mice. Uh-huh. Just says in mice. Beautiful. Oh, that's great. Good for him. That's very creative. I love that. All right, Chris, what do you got? Well, I, I'm going to segue right off of that because part of what I'm going to talk about is the naked mole rat, which is not a mouse. Oh, fantastic! But the naked mole rats—I I really wanted to make the, the the title of this little wacky and weird. What do E. coli, naked mole rats, and elephants have in common? Hmm. But at first, I'm going to talk about naked mole rats because I didn't know anything about mo- naked mole rats until I read this paper, and I was like, "Wow, these sound like really fascinating creatures." And so I'll just like rattle off a couple factoids about naked mole rats, which I bet you did not know. So number I one, I don't know anything me. about them. So they are they are there's they and one other species are the only true eusocial mammals on Earth. Meaning eusocial means that they they they. Their society is hive-like, that there is a queen and there are drones and most of the workers are sterile. And they basically, the naked mole rat colonies behave just like bees or ants, where there's one mm. reproductive, you know, female. And then when she dies, like all the, there's a group of sterile females who suddenly become sexually mature and they fight it out and become the new queen. It's just like, it's so weird. It sounds like a cult. It's like a cult. Yeah. And so I, I did not know that though. I will agree. Second fun fact is in addition to being naked, they have no pain. They they have their 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 substance P reception is totally different and they don't have nociceptors. Really? They don't. Yeah. So you can't torture a mole. So you rat. can't torture. They have no sense of pain wow. when you pierce their skin, which wow. is weird. Third thing is they're isothermic. So they are they are non-warm-blooded mammals. They are But they're not poikilotherms. 
No, they. I, I they, don't even they, know they what you just said. <laughs> might be. I'm not sure. Cold, they're cold blooded. They're not cold blooded like because reptiles. they they do regulate their temperature, but they do it behaviorally either by huddling in their den or, or by, by going up and down the the elevator, so to speak, of their burrows, oh, which wow. can go very deep into the ground in Africa. They live in Africa. And so when they're cold, they go out to where it's warm. When they're warm, they go down to where it's cooler. And they, so they may regulate just by vertical migration in the burrow. The fourth thing is that they live about 30 years, oh, wow. which is like like Methuselah rodents, <laughs> which is incredible. Oh. Um, and they, and they, have, they have an incredible tolerance for, for anoxia because they live in this hypo, the hypoxic environment deep in the ground all the time. And they can actually survive for, for 18 minutes has been documented in a zero oxygen environment without brain death. God. And they do this by sh- like basically shutting down their metabolism and going dormant. So they are incredible animals. God, they would be good pearl drive- they divers. Be, <laughs> and, and the burrows of these naked mole rats colonies can extend for three or four kilometers underground. So they spend their entire lives, they're basically blind underground. And the last thing, which is what what is the important thing, is that they have an incredibly low cancer rate, Mm. which is what I was going to talk about, because there's, I ran across this cool paper in PNAS about the pedo paradox. So so pedo, Richard pedo was this epidemiologist who made this sort of funny thought experiment that like, you know, basically stating that anytime a cell reproduces, there is a potential, you know, divides, there's a potential for a mutation to occur that would lead to cancer, right? Just because of random errors over time. Mm. And so the bigger the animal you would predict, the higher the cancer rates of the animal. Because in, like an elephant's cells are no bigger than ours. They just have more of them. A blue whale has more cells than we do. Are they not bigger cells? And so there's just like, you would think that blue whales and elephants would be riddled with cancer, but they're not. And the, you know, the paradox is not really a paradox because of course, if that were true, the elephants would all be dead of cancer. It could, they couldn't possibly survive. And so the paradox mm-hmm. is that there must be a way that the elephants have figured out a, like a strategy genetically for not getting cancer. And so there's been a lot of research in this recently, and it turns out indeed that there are all sorts of very clever genetic mechanisms that lead to this. Now, one of them is through this protein called TP, tumor protein 53. And I don't know exactly what it does. One of my favorites. TP53, right. One, what thing it does is to, it senses major errors in DNA, like a big mutation, and then it triggers apoptosis so that the cell dies. Now, we humans have like one copy of the TP53 gene in our, our body. And if that gene is mutated, that has a name. It's called the lee fraumeni syndrome. And everyone who has lee fraumeni 100% will eventually develop cancer if they, if they live long enough. Elephants have like, 20 copies of the TP53 gene. And so they are like killing, they're doing apoptosis constantly. And and it turns out that lots of other animals have different strategies for doing this too, including the naked mole rats. And they use a strategy like E. coli, which is, which is quorum sensing. So that as they get to a certain size and their cells start to cluster together, they, they, they have this tremendous inhibition to cell growth. And so they do not, they do not develop cancer. It's, uh, it, you know, well, they, occasionally they do, but it's very, very, very rare. So it was sort of oh. like an interesting experiment in like how very large animals huh. get around the, 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 the hazard of having too many cells around. Did you know that bats don't get cancer either? Yeah, and some and of them do the same thing. they thermoregulate by, um, they, they apparently can induce a fever through flying. And, and part of the immune mechanism in bats that protects them from cancer also makes them an incredibly good reservoir for exotic viruses. Wow. 
I didn't know that. Yeah. But that actually that kind of feels That's, like it makes sense. Yeah, kind of kind of it's, it's consistent with what you're saying. Uh, another huh. cool thing about the naked mole rats is um, <laughs> and there's so many cool Obviously things. Obviously there's more. <laughs> but you know, a couple um, episodes ago we well, did I think the, we should the, have them for pets. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, let's but, do oh, a, wait, let's these do a things mole rat episode. So cuddlingly ugly animals. <laughs> but they like to cuddle. They they do, but they, it's good that they're blind because they're not attractive creatures. <laughs> all right. Um, we're running out of time. All right, I'll, 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 I'll wrap it up. I'll wrap it up. But um, the, the naked mole rats also have, have like a checkpoint inhibition so that their their immune regulation of tumor cells is 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 ramped up like way high. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's how they live 35 years oh, without wow. getting cancer. It's like the, that uh, Pembrolizumab drug. Is that a serious well? <laughs> All right. So I'm done. Yeah. All right. Moving so, on. So I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to raise Talk that. Go I'm, I'm going to raise the level of discourse like I want to do by citing, a, by citing a study that was cited again in The Economist, one of my favorite sources. Notably funny journal. <laughs> Notably hysterical journal. It was, um, they're citing a paper that was done by John Jerem, Phil Parker, and Nika Schur that appeared in the Institute of Labor Economics. And the title of the, of the article in The Economist is, Who Are the Biggest Bullshitters? And apparently what they did was they had an... Ed, ed, BSers? BSers, yeah. They, um, they uh, deployed an educational survey to 40,000 teenage students in nine English-speaking countries to find out who is the most likely to spout nonsense. They, ins oh. they inserted a section into the questionnaire which asked students how well they understood a collection of 16 mathematical concepts. Some were familiar, such as polygon and probability, but three were false, proper number, Subjunctive scaling and declarative fraction. <laughs> <laughs> they don't sound pretty, yeah, they pretty sound, plausible. plausible, but they I mean, like, mean nothing. And so then they they determined which students by gender and from which countries tended to claim that they knew what those concepts were. Oh, that's beautiful. And predict. Oh, I have to, I have to say, if I had taken this test, I would have said yes. <laughs> of course, I know what that so, is. Uh, so of of the following countries, which do you think were at the top of the list, meaning that they had the highest frequency of BSers and the lowest. So we have Ooh. we have Australia, New Zealand, England, United States, Canada, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. So who was at the top? I, I'm going to say the U.S. Yeah, I would have said really? the U.S. too. No, it was Canada. Really? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, and the United States was second. Okay. And who was the last? New Zealand. Scotland. Scotland. Yeah, apparently they uh, they are just extremely truthful and they don't BS much at all. Well, that's because they've about, only got sheep. What about the difference between boys and girls? Were boys more likely to be BSers? Boys. Yes, boys. Yes, by a lot, actually. And what about rich yep. and poor? Rich. Yes. Rich. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. That, that's like reverse causality, though. Yeah. That's how they got rich. Oh, yeah, because you got, you got money. You got to sound like you, you know everything. That's right. Right. That's right. Oh, I'm too, oh, that's fantastic. Isn't that great? That is a beautiful study. The news will, not shock, will shock nobody. In every country, men claim to be experts more often than women. The rich were oh, more boastful than the poor. More surprising was the finding that immigrants were generally more likely to bluff about math than Native students were. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Well done. All right. Well. I'm suddenly feeling very awkward. <laughs> Isn't that what this like, podcast is? What was my, mass, like, my, my, my last egregious mansplaining moment? I, it's probably this morning when I was talking to my wife and she drove away in her car fast without letting me finish what I was saying. Right, <laughs> that that totally happens right. a lot, doesn't it? It seems to. 
Oh dear. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback or this or any other episode, <laughs> or you want to suggest a study for us or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or Chris at, at ID.Gill, or Don at, at DThea1, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website. That's www.pophealthex.org. We, uh, we'd like to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. <laughs>